This is Dr. Rick Wright from Vanderbilt University Medical Center, and you're listening to another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Did you know that when you think of the words moon and Mars, they actually have a meaning outside of our celestial bodies in the sky? You probably never even equated those couple of words to sports medicine. If you have not, you should, especially if you see young athletes with ACL tears. My two guests today helped to create the moon and Mars multi-center research groups. We'll talk about how these groups got started, what they found with their incredible number of prospectively followed patients with ACL tears, and how they helped set up a multi-center research group that most of us would be thrilled to mimic. Let's talk Moon and Mars. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Today on the podcast, we have two guests, both of whom I know well and have been instrumental physicians in molding my career path. Dr. Kurt Spindler is an orthopedic sports medicine surgeon who currently practices at Cleveland Clinic, which is also where he completed his sports medicine fellowship and serves as vice chair of research and director of orthopedic outcomes since moving there in 2014. Prior to that, he spent over 20 years at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, which is where I crossed paths with him during my sports medicine fellowship training and spent time in clinic with him through my two years at Vandy. He's been actively involved in numerous orthopedic professional organizations, both nationally and internationally, and has received numerous awards, has been funded by the NIH since 2006, and has over 200 peer-reviewed publications to his name. Dr. Rick Wright is the chair of the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Vanderbilt in Nashville and also an orthopedic sports medicine surgeon. He returned to Nashville where he did his orthopedic training after spending a long career as a surgeon, researcher, and team physician at Washington University, which is where I had the honor of working with him as one of my partners for 15 years. He also has been involved in numerous orthopedic professional organizations, has also secured significant NIH funding for orthopedic research, and also has published and presented extensively over his career, both nationally and internationally. It is my pleasure to have both of you on the podcast today, and thanks for taking some time to join me, Kurt and Rick. Thank you, Mark. My pleasure. I think it's a good place to start off with having you lead us off, Kurt, and give us some background on the Moon Orthopedic Group. Moon stands for Multi-Center Orthopedic Outcomes Network. Just tell us a little bit how it started, who's involved, and really what was the reason for getting it off the ground in the first place? One of the things that we recognized in the 90s was that there are many factors that led to a successful and sometimes unsuccessful ACL reconstruction, that there was a pattern of injuries that presented to us when a patient got hurt. There was a varying degree of meniscus injury, and those treatments could range from repair to resection. There was a varying degree of articular cartilage injuries or injury to the surface of the bone and bone bruises. Sometimes there were MCL injuries. Sometimes there were actually loose bodies. Patients played different sports. They were different sizes, different BMIs, and they were different genders and different sexes. So there are all these variables that one could look at, and how could we figure out why some people did really well and and why some people didn't do well. And in order to answer that question, it's not answered well by a randomized trial. It's answered well by a prospective cohort. And that's where you assemble a group of individuals at the same point in time. And our point in time was that ACL reconstruction surgery. Then you look at the graph choices and you categorize all the things that are done to them, their BMI, their gender, you calculate their patient-reported outcome measures that look at sports, that look at pain, that look at function. And then you follow them over time longitudinally and to see which factors in combination result in a worse injury. When we looked at that daunting task, 
we realized that we needed a few thousand ACLs. We all knew that we did at most a hundred a year. So we had to assemble a team to do that. And one of the things that was unique is that no large teams, multi-center research had been done in sports medicine, but we had a few people that were roughly, we were in our early in our careers, maybe 10 years or more in practice. And it was a group of us that were like-minded and said, we need to work together to answer this question because there's not a single site that can answer that question. That's sort of the genesis. And it started at a breakfast meeting in 2001 and we started collecting our first patient in 2002. And thus far, everyone that has started and we've had more people has remained intact in the group and we have not lost anyone at this point. Yeah, it's amazing testimony to your group in general. You know, Rick, you've also helped head up MARS, which is the multi-center ACL revision study. And it's spanned off of Moon, obviously. Tell us a little bit about MARS. MARS came up because Kurt and I did a couple studies together where we recognized that one of the strongest predictors for a worse outcome from an ACL reconstruction was whether or not it was a revision. And the first study that that really came up in was Kurt had submitted his five-year outcomes of his own personal ACL cohort, I believe, to American Journal of Sports Medicine. And amazingly, even though back then there was almost no five-year prospective data available, they rejected it. And so he and I had begun working together and I had seen the paper, I looked at it and I said, if you don't mind, let me take another shot with that, rework it a little bit and we'll submit it to another journal. We submitted his five-year results, his personal five-year results to Journal of Bone and Joint Surgery. And as part of that editing process, it made us take out the revisions from his cohort and only report the primaries, which was for that study. But you're sitting there recognizing that the number one predictor on why you would do poorly was if it was a revision. And so then we started looking at the moon data and, and recognized that it held true in that database too. And the problem was that we had collected our first 400 odd, I think it was around 450 ACLs in the moon physicians with the, with the 10 of us, nine of us, I guess at that point. And we knew that the results for the revisions were worse, but we only had about 10% revisions. And so if we were going to analyze all the factors that impact revisions, the 10 moon surgeons and slowly grew up into the teens, but even in the teens, we were not going to be able to collect revision ACL reconstructions because even a busy sports medicine specialist would maybe do five or 10 a year. And so we knew we needed more surgeons and we needed more sites to be able to get numbers enough because there's so many factors that can contribute to outcome in a revision ACL reconstruction. And so at that point, Kurt approached me and he and I had been in discussion and said, I think we're going to have to start another group and it's going to take more surgeons. We're going to have to approach this differently. We'll keep Moon going, but let's start a revision group. And then, of course, we had to name it. Of course, we had to find an astronomical, you know, planetary name to go along with Moon. So we came up with Mars, which is multi-center ACL revision study, but it all rolled out of Moon and us knowing that if you had a bad result from an ACL reconstruction, one of the biggest predictors for a bad result was if it was a redo. And, and that was controlling for almost every other factor. So we just said, something's going on here that we can't really predict exactly what it is. We need to figure this out. That's how we ended up at Mars. And then we started enrolling our first patient in 2010. 
Now, you guys also have come up with, you have the Moon Shoulder Group now, you have, Pluto is not part of what you guys do, correct? Correct. Yeah, and then Pluto, Pluto's pediatric ACL injuries, although they use the Disney dog in their logo, nothing as the dwarf planet, but how much time do you guys spend on creating acronyms of trying to figure out things for your groups? Well, you know, we really haven't done that. We were trying to think of a name back in 2001 of the group, and we had a bunch of really bad names, and we passed it around to people. And finally, Eric McCarty had a write-in name, and he wrote it and said, it should be Moon, Multi-Center Orthopedic Outcome Network. And as soon as we all saw it on email, we said, yes, unanimously, and it became Moon. Actually, I think, Rick, didn't the uh, research director of AOSSM coin the frame Mars? You know, it was more of a little bit of a group effort. I couldn't remember. I, I named Rock, but which is was the osteochondritis discans group. They were trying to find a planet name, and they were really had come up with Jupiter, and it was really kind of working too hard. To and then we work. have Meteor, which is Jeff yeah. Katz's randomized trial yep. published on arthroscopy versus PT for meniscus tears and mild to moderate OA, and he named that one after the planet. So I guess once Moon and Mars started. Um, and it is a moon shoulder group, and that shoulder group is really, it really is divided up into a rotator cuff section and an instability section. So well, it, it, it just, it fits. It's a nice acronym. Yeah, I do think, though, that the, the lesson that I learned and the naming bit was when you give it a recognizable handle, it, do, it does sort of matter. It just makes it easier for people to recognize your work, recognize a body of work. Um and, and say, oh, that's the moon group, oh, that's the Mars group, or that's Meteor. Um, it, it actually has more value than I think either Kurt or I would have anticipated 20 years ago when we started that the name would really resonate and really matter. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think that's important. How many centers are now all together in the moon group? People have moved around. And so right. people have moved to different centers. So that's really the, the, the centers that we're still looking at follow-up data. We bring some patients back a small number in a nested cohort. So we wanted a group of patients where we wanted to actually not just follow them up by patient-reported outcomes and failure, which is a large group of about 3,500. But there's another 425, which has less surgeons operating on them, and they, they come back for MRIs. They're coming back at 10 years for x-rays, physical examination. The centers are still Vanderbilt, Ohio State, and Cleveland Clinic are bringing these people back. And so, the, But the other centers are still responsible for basically calling their patients. And I think that leads into, I think, I, I don't know how we arrived at it and I don't know why we arrived at it, but one of the things we made that turned out to be probably the best thing was, is we created a central site for follow-up. And so that the way we did follow-up was not distributing. So, okay, you're at Vanderbilt, you're responsible for your follow-up and okay, you're at Ohio State, you're responsible for your follow-up Cleveland Clinic. What we said is, no, 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 we're not gonna do that. We are going to create a central site that follows everyone up, and we put that in our IRB. So the central site is responsible for contacting and follow them up. And then the central site does pretty well. They can get to anywhere between 60 and 70%. And then in order for us to get to the 80% mark, which we've achieved the great majority of the time, even at 10 years, it, we require the surgeons and, and the coordinators at the individual sites. So Vanderbilt will say, okay, We've got everything we can do. It's time for you, Kurt Spindler, to uh, text and call your patients or, okay, Chris Kading, it's time for you to do it. Okay, Rick Wright. And that model has um, is been responsible 
for achieving the outstanding follow-up we have. And that model has been, I think, underappreciated, but it's also been duplicated by several other centers. I'm sure, Rick, maybe you remember something more. Any more comments on that that type of model for follow-up? I guess there's a chance we would have had the follow-up success with a decentralized model, but I think I can show you an example. We had adopted the centralized follow-up for Mars, but we had two centers that as part of their IRB and, a, and the ability to participate in the study and some of their institutional rules would not allow external follow-up. And those were two decently sized groups in Mars and they have lagged way behind on follow-up and have, have caused us some issues. Whereas our centralized follow-up sites, which are the other 50, once again, we've been at over 70% follow-up, but these two sites, which are pretty big, and I won't name them, but have lagged behind and really caused us to have our overall follow-up not look as good because we can't step in and do the follow-up for them. And they just have so many things going on that their coordinators just are not, don't have the vested interest that the centralized coordinators have. You know, and I think that's the thing that's impressed me the most with Moon Studies. You mentioned, Kurt, you get 80% follow-up rate at 10 years. And we're talking about a population that's that's teenagers and young adults who typically are moving around a lot, changing their locations, and still getting these people back for 10-year follow-up is, is impressive. Are, are there any thoughts from either of you of how you've been able to be so successful with this over the years? I mean, you mentioned the centralized follow-up, which I think is probably key for this, but how are you able to keep tracking these people down over the years? The tracking is the um, use of the internet and the use of emails, the use of text messaging and the other points of contact have been clearly instrumental. But the be able to get the follow-up rate above 70% and getting 80% requires the individual surgeons are usually calling between 20 and 30% of their patients every year. So these surgeons that signed, <laughs> signed up for this idea and the breakfast meeting in 2001 now, almost 20 years later, are still responsible for calling their patients up and saying, would you please complete the patient reported outcome questionnaire that we sent you for your 10-year follow-up? So it's kind of like, it's almost like the bad penny. They, they're still on the hook and they're still, they're still calling and everyone calls that I know about. Everyone does a good job. It's really pretty amazing. It's not as much fun as it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose as it gets further along in your career, it's probably not as, as high on your priority list. Uh, it's important. We just, everyone has a lot going on and it's easy to put it at the bottom of the list, but eventually you just have to do it to get the follow-up. Yep. You guys have got a very rich database now and in sports medicine, I think the only other database that to me comes to mind that may compare with the number of published studies that have spawned from a data collection tool is Don Comstock's High School Rio database. When you went to developing the study and its aims at the start of this, how how did you both go about figuring out what data you wanted to prospectively collect? And I'll have you start, Kurt and Rick, if you want to add after that, feel free. Well, you know, I, I actually Googled on Comstock's high school injury database. It's pretty amazing. They have tens of thousands of injuries that they've tracked over 40 million different events. And that's quite impressive. And it's an epidemiological database looking at why people get injured and see whether they can look at prevention. In our database, we wanted to be looking at what treatments that we render, what graft choices, what treatment of the meniscus, what factors related to the patient and age cause poor outcomes. And what we just attempted to do is to capture all the variables that we could that you do at surgery. So graft choice, 
how you drilled your tunnels, what the articular surface looked like, what the meniscus looked like, what did you do with the meniscus involved in that patient. And then we didn't know exactly what validated patient-reported outcomes had just came out then. And so we used the COOS and the IKDC, and they came out in 1998 and 2001. In fact, the IKDC wasn't out yet. And MARCS came out with an activity level in 2000. And so these authors, we used them all because I wasn't going to hinge something on one outcome measure and find out that outcome measure is invalid. And so we used them all and it turned out they're all valid and they, they all track different things. So we were, we were very fortunate that the individuals that were developing these psychometric designed a million dollars to do each of these patient reported outcomes were anxious to have it and give it to us to use in the data. So it was the right time and the right place. And we were really fortunate by the outcome forms we picked. I think that was the paradigm shift that at times was hardest to overcome, but in retrospect was most important to allow us to do so many patients. And at, at the time when Kurt started this, if you didn't bring the patients back on site and measure stability and get an x-ray, then people didn't think you were actually doing follow-up. But in reality, what's an outcome? You can walk in a patient's room, examine them at six months, their knee's stable as a rock, and you say, hey, your knee looks great, or maybe at a year, and they say, yeah, doc, but I, I can't play basketball, and that's why I wanted the reconstruction. I can't do the things I wanted to do. doesn't matter how stable the knee is, the outcome was poor because you didn't achieve what you wanted to for the patient. But it really took us fighting some of the dinosaurs and some of the older guard that had been used to what they believed outcome was to convince them that there was more than one type of outcome and that this outcome had value. And in fact, in that article I alluded to earlier, they actually wrote an editorial saying, you know, are, are valid outcomes valid? And it was an editorial by the sports editor in our leading JBJS journal, basically saying that what we were doing <laughs> wasn't the right outcomes. Ironically, that editor then got attacked by people around the country who said, no, these are actually probably more valid than measuring physical measurements. And they're just a different type of uh, outcome. And he ultimately lost his editorship of that journal. So it was an interesting time for trying to make this, stake our ground to build this and establish credibility for what we were trying to do. Now, I mean, you said Kurt could explain, tell someone that story that is five years out in practice and they just laugh. They go, what do you mean? I can't imagine that. But when we were starting this and we're relatively young in our careers, we, we were criticized and attacked and Kurt was really uh, uh, beat up for thinking that what we were doing was right. Now, you know, I think we've been proven in the long run that there are many ways to measure outcome and this is just another one and it's as valid as any. And uh, I like it because it asks the patient how they're doing and they tell you how they're doing. And Rick, you bring up a good point there of talking about the dinosaurs. I, you know, I love history and I love kind of looking at the history of how we've come to where we are in medicine. And I mean, maybe just explaining to some of our, our listeners who may be younger in practice or, or younger in general that, you know, even may not have been alive at the time that this study started. But what were some of those kind of things that people were looking at considering the standards of what outcomes were? Was it just, you know, this is my patients did this well and they, they didn't come back or, or what was it? Well, one of the things that everyone felt like you needed to have was it was a stability measurement device 
called a KT-1000. And it would pull on your lower leg with your knee stabilized and look at the translation that you had in your reconstructed knee compared to the knee, the opposite knee with a normal ACL. And it would measure in millimeters, and it, and it does a reasonable job. It would measure in millimeters how much forward translation you had compared to the other knee. And if your graft was providing the stability similar to a normal ACL. And you could examine a, a person that walked in your clinic with a suspected ACL tear. And what we had learned, and it was developed by a man named, uh, orthopedic surgeon named Dale Daniels in San Diego. And the KT-1000, if that measurement was more than five millimeters, then you had enough looseness in the knee that you would have ACL instability. And so after a reconstruction, you wanted to have obviously less than five millimeters and higher threshold that people were shooting for was three millimeters or less. But there was no understanding of whether three millimeters was better than two millimeters was better than, or one millimeter was better than three millimeters. No one knew. We just knew that if you had three millimeters or less and your knee didn't give way and pivot, that you had a stable knee. But people would, and I, and I understand when you're designing new crafts and fixation devices, you need to know that it maintains and will hold stability. But no one had any idea whether or not form equals function, whether or not stability gave people the ability to go back to sports. And But people were hanging their hat on, well, my KT-1000 measurement on this patient is one millimeter, so I did a great job. So they should be playing basketball, football, soccer, whatever they want to do, because I did a great reconstruction. And it just didn't always work out that way. They could have meniscus tears and arthritis and didn't rehab well and quad. I mean, there's just so many different factors as to why you would or would not have success. But when someone reported outcomes, most of the time they wouldn't report return to sports. They would report maybe retear rate and stability measurements with this device and x-rays, which are pretty, you know, not very informative after a reconstruction. Wouldn't you agree, Kurt, that that it just was a paradigm yeah. for what we were doing. Yeah, it was. Yeah, people today say, "What are you kidding me?" I, that makes sense, but it was a great shift. And I think what we also recognized was the people's knees that were the tightest, that were tighter than the other side, or as tight as the other side, actually did worse because what they, what was happening, they were getting a more inflammatory reaction to more scar tissue, and those knees didn't function well. I, I think that it really was a, a huge paradigm shift and. I think the next paradigm shift that we want to make, and we'll talk about that later, is that you just can't look at an individual and pick one or two modifiable factors and say, this is your choice. I think when we talk later about graph choice, there is a calculator that gives you a ability to predict your expected failure rate between two different graphs. And it's more than when it, when you look at autographs, it's more than just age in there. It really comes down to the type of sport they play, and it comes down to um, their age, what they use, and it comes down to some other factors that relate to it. So the idea of saying that there's one factor that that we can predict or that all patella tendons are better than all and all hamstrings are worse, that's not really true. It really comes down. You really have to use a calculator to look to how you sort these modifiable variables and these variables that aren't modifiable into a, an equation to give you the best estimate of what's going to be. And that's, I think that's the next big shift we have to make is that 
risk calculators or outcome calculators, they're not, they're not a one-to-one -one relationship, but they're, they give you an idea of what, at least what the best evidence can provide as far as making an informed decision. I think that's a perfect segue. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will discuss some of that specific research that Kurt was referring to that's come from the Moon and Mars databases. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great cost-effective on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From the voice box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. The podcast and Matrix is a system, listener, one that's based on experience, skill sets, and you. There are other hosts, but what I'm telling you is that when it's time to dodge the billing bullets for hosting your entire podcast library online, you won't need to. Plug into the real-world podcast hosting solution now at podcastermatrix.com. That's podcastermatrix.com. Make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. Editing podcasts can be, ugh, rough. Everyone knows that you'll spend at least double the time you use creating the podcast when editing it. Then there's the control freak factor and the gotta get it right the first time. Well, it's time to shove all that out the door and make your podcast soar with the Editor Core. The Editor Core is a talented, experienced team of podcast editors that have edited tens of thousands of hours of podcast content and they're ready for yours now. Check out EditorCore.com because it's time to make your podcast soar. EditorCore.com. That's EditorCore.com. We're back on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast, and we have Dr. Kurt Spindler and Dr. Rick Wright, and we are discussing the Moon and Mars studies. And we're going to dive right in with talking about some of the research that's helped guide decision-making for our adolescents with ACL tears. Let's start with the study from the American Journal of Sports Medicine, AJSM, published earlier this year that looked at bone tendon bone versus hamstring autographs. This study looked at 770 patients who had six-year follow-up of high school and college-age athletes and looked at the rates of subsequent ACL reconstructions, which may have been a revision or a contralateral knee reconstruction. There is a fairly high incidence of subsequent tears of 9.2% of the ipsilateral knee, or the same knee, that originally had a reconstruction, and 11.2% rate in the contralateral or opposite knee. You found that the odds of ACL graft revision was 2.1 times higher for those patients who had a hamstring autograph versus bone tendon bone autograph. Did these results surprise either of you? And, and what other things may have you found interesting from that study? Well, I think that we suspected that the more aggressive the athlete, the younger the athlete, the more likely that you would favor a bone tendon bone reconstruction than a hamstring. But we had no data to support that on. And when we started in Moon, we had three types of individuals. 
We had individuals that did patella tendon surgery exclusively. We had individuals that did hamstring surgery exclusively. And we had individuals that were pickers and choosers said, I think that a hamstring is better for this person and I think a BTV is better there. I'm not gonna tell you what group I'm in. I wasn't in a group that was a picker and chooser. And the people that were in one camp or the other kind of teased the pickers and choosers about why they would pick something and what data were they using. And we also knew from the overall databases, we looked at the European database, the Moon database, and we looked at the Kaiser database. And when you look at the odds ratio of failure between hamstring versus BTB, the odds ratio is 1-5, So there's something there. there. There's certainly a little higher frequency. And I think we missed it early on because I think if you blend it across all age groups and we have all you know 30s and 40 years old, the overall failure rate's not that high. It just goes away because basically it doesn't make a difference in older people. But when you look at the young, aggressive individual, and that's why we picked the high school and college athlete, 14 to 22, and we took only athletes that were injured, and our sports were soccer, basketball, football, and other. When you did that, you find that some circumstances there were strikingly different. That hamstring choice created more failures in some individuals, not every individual. And we actually created a calculator we also created a website, it's acltear.info, and if you put moon after it in Google, it'll come up. And there's a calculator in there that you hand it to the patient, and the patient fills out their activity level. The patient fills out all the things related to their sport, related to their age, and that will actually show you and compare you the failure rate between a hamstring and a BTB. What did surprise us is the fact that if we had a knee that was really loose, what we call a loose knee. That was a knee that had the, the greater than 10 millimeters on a Lockman and had a pivot lock. Those knees really increased the failure rate for BTB and hamstring and actually accentuated the difference. So if you really want to know what the optimal graft is, you really have to go to that calculator and calculate it out. It also will tell you the other side cause of other side failure, which can be really helpful because if you have a kid that's 18 in lacrosse and he's scared to go back to play sport if you figure out his failure rate it's like two percent at six years you shouldn't be that afraid but you got a 14 year old that is like superman superwoman that you probably use a calculator and say you know your failure rate is you know double digits on both sides maybe we ought to do something and make sure we order rehab and return to sport so there are things that we learned by it and we learned that it's just not as simple as saying one graph's better than the other there are circumstances where one is preferred and there are circumstances and we give the actual failure rate. So we think if it's 5% or greater, you should switch to the graph that's lower. If it's three to five, we think it's, you should think about it. And if it's less than 3%, we think that it probably doesn't matter. It's within the margin of error. You could either pick BTB and not be wrong, but it doesn't always mean you're right. There are many circumstances where a hamstring can be. And I'll be sure to have that website in our show notes for our listeners for sure. Just out of curiosity, a little off topic here, uh, there's been some movement towards quadriceps tendon for the graft choice. Uh, what have you guys thoughts about that as opposed to patellar tendon? Rick, you want to take that one first? Sure. I think that as an autograft, it has practitioners that have used it enough to know the nuances to make it successful in their hands. I have not utilized it myself. I just haven't had a need to add another graft to my arsenal, but I think with good fixation, the tissue 
we don't have as much data and as much long-term follow-up on it. So to to really plant a flag and say that it will perform like a hamstring or like a patellar tendon or somewhere in between or whatever is is a little premature, I think. But I know that people that I know and trust and that are very objective in their approach to sports medicine are are using it quite a bit. I just have not had a, a need to. I, I mostly do patellar tendon and hamstrings if they're truly skeletally immature or if the patient has a strong choice that they use a hamstring. And, and I'm getting more towards like Kurt with the calculator. And if you're over 40, I'll offer you an allograft. Many people still would choose an autograft. I think it's going to sort out somewhere. It's going to have some advantages and disadvantages. I think it's going to be another one to look at between hamstring and BTB. I have not done it. Other people do it. I think its real advantage might be in that skeletally immature individual where you can't use a BTB and hamstrings are smaller and hamstrings may not be able to be good enough. So I think it, it may have real advantages in that person that's not skeletally mature where you can get enough tissue and put it in there because there's some evidence to suggest that one of the reasons why hamstrings fail is size and that when you get the small hamstring sizes that they tend to fail more than that. And so it may have advantages in the skeletal immature. We'll talk about another study in 2018, the 10 years outcome and risk factor study from the Moon Group was published in AJSM. There were 1,592 patients enrolled, which was 83% of the original cohort. Again, that that unbelievable follow-up there. I'm going to summarize a few things here, but to make sure all of our listeners know what each of these things mean, we'll go through them individually. You referred to this a little bit earlier, I know, Kurt, but I'll have Rick talk about this. The IKDC and CUS score stayed stable from the two-year, six-year, and 10-year follow-ups. Rick, can you kind of explain what those evaluation measures are, what they stand for, and what they mean for, for everybody? So the IKDC is the International Knee Documentation Committee score. It started out as a non-patient reported outcome, was developed in conjunction with uh, AOSSM, the American Orthopedic Society for Sports Medicine. One of the leading workers on it was actually uh, a close friend of Kurt's and a good friend of mine, uh, Alan Anderson, here in Nashville. And uh, it started out as a not a patient report outcome. Then they developed a second version of it, which some people referred to as subjective, which is not really fair. It just was more patient-oriented. And it has really served us well. It has functioned very well, has had great value for us in looking at two, six, 10 plus year results, and is a great measure of sporting activities. The COOS is K-O-O-S, actually stands for the Knee Injury and Osteoarthritis Outcome Score, but they shortened it to COOS because that, that worked best. It's 42 questions in five subscales, pain, Activities of daily living is another. Then there's symptoms and sports and recreation and quality of life. We have really found value in, in that the most sensitive subscale is quality of life and then sports and recreation. And that, that is really, they're, they're, they're both validated and they've both really worked well for us in measuring patients longitudinally over time and looking at how there's knees doing compared to a previous time. And what we found in general there, they're scored on a 100-point scale, and about a 10 or 11-point change is a real difference in the knees. So that if you score a 90 today and a 91 tomorrow on taking the same thing, the same scoring, probably no difference in your knee 
But if two years ago you were a 95 and this time two years later you fill out the questionnaire and you scored as an 80, then your knee is probably significantly changed in a meaningful way. That, that's sort of how those scoring measures have worked as we have used them with Moon and Mars. And then in this study, mark scores dropped significantly over time. It was 12 points at baseline down to nine points at two years, seven points at six years, and then six points at the 10-year follow-up. Kurt, can you talk about what the mark scores measures and what this means? The mark score measures uh, a cutting and pivoting activity. So it's how many times a month do you, do you twist, do you cut, do you decelerate? And it's really, really what aggressive athletes do. So if you run a marathon, you score a three on that scale. So you have to be cutting and pivoting many times a week in order to get points on that scale. And just goes to show you that the individuals drop down a lot in half at 10 years, they, their frequency of playing sports that require cutting and pivoting. Now, whether the, whether the drop in, in stress in your knee is the reason why their patient-reported outcomes are IK to C and CUS stay stable, we're not sure. It's very difficult to tease out. And we're going to try to tease out whether the scores are stable and the, uh, as a result of their knees being stable or, or the score is stable because they're dropping their activity involved in that. So we're going to have to try to look at that statistically and tease it out. So the interesting thing was that the population means were the same for two, six, and 10 years. But, and also when you looked at an individual patient, when you asked the question about an individual patient, whatever score the individual patient had at two years they were roughly about 80% likely to stay at that same score at six and 10 years, which is an amazing durability. Obviously, their, their activity levels are dropping. And the things that would, would cause them to change, meaning why, to get worse from two to six and six to 10 years, are really related to things that happen to them that relate to any subsequent surgery. And that could be a, a failure of the opposite ACL. It could be the failure of the ACL tear, or it could be a repeat operation for Cyclops lesion. It could be from a meniscus repair that failed. It could be a new meniscus tear, or it could just be a debridement. And so we learned that that any second surgery to the knee after the after the initial surgery is highly and very stable a predictor of being having a much worse outcome including having pain consistent with arthritis at your knee at, at six years. And let's talk about those. So in this study, the risk factors that were found to have inferior or poor tenure outcomes were having lower baseline scores, having a higher body max index or body mass index, being a smoker at baseline, having a procedure on the medial lateral meniscus before they had any ACL surgeries, having a revision ACL reconstruction. We've talked about that having a lateral meniscectomy, having a, a grade three or grade four articular cartilage lesion on the medial, lateral, or patellofemoral compartments, and then if they had to undergo any surgery to the same knee after ACL reconstruction. Any of those risk factors that were determined worse outcomes surprise you guys? I mean, these are things obviously you've been following over several years now, uh, a decade, uh, but any of those that, that kind of trigger anything with you? The one that's surprising is what's missing is the fact that the meniscus tear and treatment isn't related to the 10-year outcome and the way we modeled it. The meniscus tears do matter when if they result in any second surgery. So if you so the way that it surprised me is that meniscus repair doesn't protect you. And in fact, if you 
are thinking about being aggressive and repairing a meniscus tear that has a high rate for failure, you probably shouldn't do that because it, it's going to likelihood any likely to result in a second surgery, which gives someone a worse outcome. Rick, your thoughts? I think it just shows what we learned in some of those old open meniscectomy studies where people would take out the entire meniscus. The, in a lot of settings, the knee is pretty resilient. And I think when we get to 20 year outcome, the meniscus is going to jump out there. Losing your meniscus at time zero is going to jump out there as a big factor, but boy, it just continues to plot along and they do, and they really do reasonably well. But there are some situations as Kurt pointed out, where when you do a meniscus repair, that's marginal and, and potentially has a high chance of failure, you may not be doing the patient as much good as you would hope and that we should maybe not be quite as aggressive uh, as, as we like. Similar in Mars, it's funny how some of these things always come up, but in Mars, one of the strongest predictors for a worse outcome is if prior to the revision, so when you had your primary ACL or before you ever had any ACL reconstructions, if you had, had lost part of your lateral meniscus, sort of like in the moon study, if you had had previous meniscus surgery that started that clock ticking sooner, that was a, a predictor for worse outcome. And while our patients aren't as active and quite as old, it's because they've already gone through a primary, had it fail, now they've had another surgery. So our, our median age was 26. That's about four years older than most primary ACL series. But we had lots of teenagers getting a revision and our youngest patient was a 12 year old. So if you're getting a revision at age 12, that's really, um, a bad prognostic predictor or indicator for probable long-term knee health. So we've got these affecting a lot of pediatric uh, um, patients, which is really sad. And I'm going to talk about another study, and then then I'd like to get your guys' perspective after we talk about this, the studies here of how these studies have influenced or changed your practice or your surgical decision-making. But you know, a study I'm sure that I, I really was, would hope has changed surgical practices that was published originally in Sports Health in 2011, then had a follow-up published in 2015 in AJSM. It demonstrated a higher retail rate in the 10 to 19-year-old age group, but also finding that allografts were significantly associated with a higher retail rate than either BTB or hamstring autographs. And in the 2011 study, 3.5% of the autograph reconstructions and 8.9% of the allograft reconstructions reported a graft failure, the highest percentage of these failures were in the 10 to 19-year-old age group. And if age was held constant, those with allograft reconstructions were four times more likely to tear the graft than autograph. Rick, can you explain this to our listeners, the difference between autograph and allograft, and, and did these results surprise your group when you found these originally in 2011? An autograft means a graft taken from the patient's body. And we've talked about the three most common grafts at the time that this study was being done. I'm not sure that anyone was using a quadriceps tendon. So these are fundamentally all patellar tendon, which is the middle third of the patellar tendon with two small pieces of bone attached to it, or it's the hamstring tendons, which is where the muscle for the hamstrings on the inside part of the leg, the medial side of the leg attached to the, to the leg, to the tibia. And so an autograft is, a, is taken from your own body. An allograft is a tissue from a cadaver, and that increases your options. And so the cadaver grafts can be patellar tendon or hamstring-like in autographs, or it can also 
being anterior tibialis was common in that time frame, or it could be an Achilles tendon. And nationwide, uh, a lot of people like using Achilles tendons, but they're obtained from cadavers and they are processed. And the processing has gone through many iterations. There's been a radiation, there's been biological cleansing to sterilize the grafts, and some of those have, have failed miserably. Many people have believed that an allograft was equal to an autograft if it had not undergone a radiation and was fresh frozen. We have not necessarily seen that, at least in Mars, we haven't seen that. But in the revision setting, which is a different animal, we're talking about primaries here. But did this surprise me? Intuitively, I have always been an autographed person, and I think patients picked up on my biases. And when I tell some teenagers we're going to take tissue from a cadaver, they kind of, you know, weirded out and didn't think that sounded like a good deal. So I really, and I know Kurt was the same way, I just mainly used autographed for all of my patients. And then this study really gave me objective data to give families, which helped me, and also actually made me offer allografts more commonly. I'm not sure the patients chose them that much more commonly, but I would offer an allograft to anybody over the age of 40 as, as an option because statistically it, it was going to hold up 98% of the time. So if they didn't want to use their own tissue, I just let them use an allograft. So it didn't, it maybe it ironically made me offer allografts more, but didn't change how I handled the teenagers. And then Kurt, in the follow-up study from 2015, there was 2,683 patients that were evaluated. It was found that the retail rate in that study was 5.2 times higher for allograft compared to the BTB uh, autograft, but there wasn't a significant difference between retails of hamstring versus BTB autographs. And then this study also looked at the risk for contralateral tears of the native knee, meaning it hadn't had an ACL tear previously, and found that higher mark scores for activity level and a lower age were predictors for tears of the contralateral knee. This study demonstrated even higher retear rate with the use of allograft than in the 2011 study. Kurt, your comments? Yeah, the real issue with allograft is age. If you go back to the 2015 study, we have three curves in our figure, and you can see how the hamstring and BTB curves are overlapping until you get to that age range around 20, and then they begin to diverge. And because we blended it across the whole group, there wasn't enough of a difference between the two. And that's why we, we did the follow-up study and said, okay, let's restrict it to only athletes, which takes out about 20%, and to only 14 to 22-year-old individuals. And when you do that, you find a difference and you have to use a calculator to understand what that difference is by sport, by size, by activity level, by laxity of the knee. And now if you look at allograft, if the difference in failure rate of an allograft is three to one, but at 40 years old, it's 2.4% versus 0.8%. So the absolute difference is 1.6. And that's why over 40, the differences are actually almost equal between graphs. And that's why we tend to offer that graph over 40. But when you get to an 18-year-old, and, and the younger you get, the more, the greater the difference. An 18-year-old, the difference between failure of an allograft versus an autograph is 14%. And that's a number needed to harm of seven. That's huge. That is amazing. That's a huge difference, 14%. And that difference gets greater. The difference is greater. So it's not looking at the overall failure rate. You got to look at the individual patient and personalize it to them. And again, it's really a matter of age. So that's why we pretty much say that if you're in that 14 to 22 year old, we wouldn't offer an allograft to them because 
the risk of failure is high. Things that make it worse that we can't actually calculate in because the, the activity level of the patient and the age are so closely linked, we can't separate them. But we also believe that if you have an older individual that's, let's say, is 30 years old and, and they're a highly competitive athlete, that difference is more likely to be greater. And so we would be less likely inclined to even consider an allograph for that one. We've mostly talked about moon studies tonight. The Mars studies had a little bit older age group in the study, so I didn't pull out any individual studies themselves, but we're discussing a higher retail rate in the younger population in general. Have there been any interesting findings from the Mars groups that may be important for influencing decision-making for orthopedic surgeons or something that you guys have changed your practice on or someone for me as a sports medicine physician who sees these patients but will be referring them on for surgery once they're diagnosed? Rick, some comments? So similarly, the critical question that the revision surgeons wanted to know was what graft should I be using? Because the revision is a different setting. You've already had one graft. It can make the surgery more straightforward, sometimes simpler if you can use an allograft. They may have, like, like I mentioned, may have had an autograft already chosen. And so people were interested to know, are we going to see the same differences between allograft and autograft in revisions as we did in primary? So we are submitting, it's been provisionally accepted, we're having to revise it, our six-year results for autograft versus allograft. And what we found was that the allograft's re-rupture rate was 4.2 times higher than the autograft. So an odds ratio of 4.2. Surgeons would say to Kurt and myself that, hey, I don't have any choice. I have to use whatever graft I have to use because they've had a revision and I don't have choice. And so we looked at a propensity study, which was an interesting way to analyze the data. What it does in a non-randomized trial will take all the factors and predict why things occur. And so what we did when we looked at that, we found that the strongest predictor of why you got the graft that you got for a revision in the MARS study was who your surgeon was age, it wasn't your previous craft, it wasn't sports, it wasn't activity, it wasn't gender, it was who your surgeon was. So we came back to everyone and said, hey, you can use an autograft because it's surgeon dependent. You can find a way to use an autograft and it's a cop-out to say, oh, I'm stuck using whatever graft I use. So the propensity study combined with the graft choice study, I think tells us that we can educate surgeons to use autographs and we don't have enough failures in the revisions to really stratify it by age. It seems to be less age dependent in the revisions and that the autographs work better a lot of the time, regardless of age, as far as preventing re-rupture. And I think it's just because it's a harsher environment in the revision setting. And so the autograph seems to hold up a little bit better. There have been several other studies published from the Moon Group that we haven't touched on as I wanted to highlight the ones we've already discussed any other comments that either of you want to make about any moon studies, maybe some take-home points from those studies that would be relevant to the pediatric and adolescent population? Um, we'll start with Kurt. Well, one study we've just recently published in the summer was looking at the reasons for subsequent surgery and outside of graft failure. And repeat meniscus surgery is a big reason. And the biggest predictor of that is having a prior meniscus repair. I think it's a very different decision-making process when you have someone 12, 13, 14 versus someone 16, 17, 18. And I, I don't think that we should be repairing some tears that have no biology to heal because they don't have a blood supply. And we shouldn't be so aggressive 
thinking that we should repair everything because there is harm in repairing something that's going to go on to fail because that failure leads to a worse outcome. And we don't know why, but one of the hypotheses is that when you have repeat surgery, every time you do surgery, you create bleeding into the knee. And by creating bleeding into the knee, you create an inflammatory environment that it has a toxic effect or a chondrocytic effect in killing some of the chondrocytes. And so we should operate when we need to. We need to make the best decisions to avoid subsequent surgery as best we can. And we may have to shift the pendulum to fix everything, repair every meniscus tear to fix the ones that are going to have a high propensity to heal. But I'd like to hear what Rick thinks about that as well. I agree. I think that you can go all the way back to some of the early meniscus repair studies and know that certain patterns of tear haven't healed by second look and by really fantastic, well-done studies with really meticulous repair techniques, even back in the 80s and 90s. And unfortunately, the pendulum always swings and people get very aggressive in repairing tears that, like Kurt said, biologically have little chance of healing. And unfortunately, I think he's right in that it's not a cavalier approach because I, I think that's a negative connotation, but I think it's an approach by the surgeon who says, well, they're a teenager and I need to do everything possible to try and save this knee. And if I have to come back and do a simple arthroscopy to trim out a repair that doesn't heal, that's worth it occasionally versus getting arthritis. And, and I think Kurt's right. And, and I don't think we exactly know, but I think his hypothesis or his belief or his concern about bleeding into the knee and the inflammatory risk with that, it's something, if it's that or something else. But these patients do not do well when you keep operating on them. I, I repair meniscus, but I repair tears that I know have a very good chance of healing and a low chance of me reoperating. And they're typically longitudinal tears in vascularized portion of the meniscus, which is historically our traditional tears that we've talked about repairing. I do that so that I can preserve those menisci and not have to operate on them. So I think Kurt really is on to something here in that. But it would be a little bit of heresy to say we shouldn't try to repair everything. But he and I are in groups where people send around pictures and case studies and ask questions about what would you do with this. And typically the story ends in having to go back and cut the whole meniscus out because the complicated repair didn't heal. And finally, I wanted to finish up with if either of you had any advice to give, possibly even some lessons learned in conducting a large and lengthy multi-center trial. We, we call this point of our podcast, The Pearl of the Podcast, something our listeners may be able to get a little nugget of information that may help them in either their practice. And for this case, either regard to moon research or even with regards to starting up multi-center research groups. And this month also in our podcast, we're going to be highlighting PRISM, the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society. I'm now personally part of three multi-center studies that without this organization, I probably really would not have been a part of or something that would have crossed my path as easily. And I probably actually honestly wouldn't have been as eager to participate with, but they've been really interesting. And I'm glad even at this point in my career that I've actually started on some of this. And I think many of our listeners would love to hear advice from each of you. And we'll start with Rick for your pearl. My pearl is do it. There are lots of unanswered questions out there and the multi-center research, the relationships, the questions we've been able to ask and answer are the highlight of my academic career. And it's been fun while also really solving clinical problems. So do it. 
when you when you're given an opportunity, sign up. And then if you're going to start one of these groups, centralized follow up. I certainly agree with what Rick said. The the other thing I would suggest is find one individual that is crazy enough that is in charge of running it and seeking funding to keep these things going. And the second thing would be to don't try to recreate the wheel. When we started Moon and Mars, we spent some time looking at other groups that were ahead of us. And we talked to them. We looked at what the spine group had done before us. And we looked at other multi-center groups to learn from them, to learn their pitfalls, the mistakes they wish they didn't make again, and things that worked well. So I would certainly, if you're going to start up a group, I would certainly ask a group that's gone on before and ask for the good, the bad, and the ugly. And most of us will share that because what we don't want to have happen is we don't want the group to make the same mistakes. The last thing or the third thing I would add was if you're going to do it, use REDCap. You have a unbelievable database system in REDCap, and there really should be no question that almost destroyed us in Moon and Mars early on. So use REDCap because that really can handle 99% of everything you want to do. I really like to thank both of my guests today, Dr. Kurt Spindler and Dr. Rick Wright, two giants in the world of orthopedic sports medicine for taking the time to join me and taking some time out of their busy schedules. As we start the new year of 2021, we have lots of plans for the upcoming year for the podcast. For this month in January, we will be highlighting PRISM, the Pediatric Research and Sports Medicine Society, throughout this month. And as we get closer to their virtual online meeting at the end of January, be sure to check out all of our episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com and follow us on Twitter and Facebook. We truly appreciate your feedback, so please leave us a review through your favorite podcast streaming platform to help us get the word out. We're also interested in your ideas for what you may want to hear about or who you may want to hear from on the podcast for future episodes, so go to our website and drop us a comment. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halsted, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.